Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognize market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Welcome to Takeaways. This is Hayam Mizrahi. I'm here with an extremely special guest today. My good friend, my dear friend, Dory Corin. Excuse me. Lieutenant Dory <laughs> Corin, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Dory and I were fraternity brothers in college, but we've developed beyond that. I, I view Dory as my little brother, a real little brother. And I just want to, hey, thanks for being here today, Dory. Well, thank you for having me. It's truly an honor, Haim. I really appreciate it. Dory, spend a few minutes. Tell everybody who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, so as you said, I, uh, I'm a lieutenant with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. My career in law enforcement uh, is really divided into a few different areas that I focused in. But just like most law enforcement officers, I have a portion. Mine, in my case, is a little smaller portion, but a portion in traditional crime fighting. Right. So at some point in my career, I was on, on the streets in a uniform, chasing bad guys, catching bad guys, fighting bad guys, and so on and so forth. So, so in short, that crime fighting aspect of my career is part of it. But the reality is, for me, I've had a relatively unique career path in law enforcement, and that has centered around uh, counterterrorism and intelligence operations. And I've spent well over a decade specializing in those areas. I so you're a, you're a real life Jack Bauer. No, no, no. I I, I would say not. Uh, I mean Jack. I mean this great TV show. But the reality is, counterterrorism in general is certainly nothing like it is portrayed in Hollywood. But also, there's also a difference from what yeah, I want to say. That's a shame, but I mean, it's it's funny, but it's not funny. Yeah, it's it's pretty captivating on TV. It's very captivating. But just like any career, I mean, if you think about it, uh, law enforcement or not law enforcement, excuse me, Hollywood makes everything much more captivating than it really is in re- real life, right? Whether you're watching a show about being real estate agents, right, or watching ah, a show, good, good well, no, analogy. <laughs> yeah, uh, or watching a show about you know being a lawyer or being a police officer on the street, you know, generally they want to depict something that's the, all the action, all the fun parts. They don't show all the paperwork in between. Uh, so the same thing I would say in counterterrorism. There's certainly re- very rewarding aspects of that kind of career field. And there's some things that might relate to what you see in movies. But the, the reality is it's very different. And there's also a big difference from what you see in local law enforcement, counterterrorism operations, and what you would see overseas for someone working counterterrorism in Afghanistan or Iraq, obviously very, okay. very different. But for me, um, I've worked primarily locally. I've been in a part of a local agency. I've done some things nationally, but ultimately I've worked for a local agency and specialized in counterterrorism and intelligence. And in that sense, I've traveled all over the country. I've even traveled as far as Ghana and India and, uh, to teaching counterterrorism and being involved in counterterrorism efforts. How old are you? I, uh, you know, I hate to talk about my age. Give me a range. Uh, I am between early thirties, mid thirties, mid thirties. Okay. Uh, I think it's important that we establish your age just for as this conversation develops for people to, to have that image in their mind. So uh, fair enough. I mean, and if they see the picture, they look, they're going to look at you and say that you're 22 years old. And then I don't know how your voice comes through. Over my voice microphone. probably comes in a little young too. Okay. I, I'm not sure, but, but let me explain that to you, right? Cause somebody, somebody's going to listen and say, Oh my God, why is he embarrassed of his age? I'm not embarrassed by my age, but 
there is this thing about work where a lot of people constantly ask me how old I am. And I hate to answer that question. Uh, one is it does come with bias when people start perceiving how old you are. But two, for me... So I, are you a victim of ageism? No, 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 no. Not a victim <laughs> of ageism, but uh, I've, I've pride myself on trying to uh, break the mold in a lot of parts of my career. And in that sense, I, I, I became the youngest detective that I could. I, I became a detective at the youngest age possible. And then at one point, I tested and became a sergeant, which is our first-line supervisor, and I was the youngest sergeant on the police department. Today, I, I'm pretty sure I'm still the youngest lieutenant on the police department, and I pride myself on being able to do things young, and mainly because I have some great mentors and support system that really help me out. But ultimately, I hate to make age a factor beyond that. I would, I'll just add one more thing, and then we'll keep going into what you do um, at Metro. But it's interesting that you say that you had mentors – uh, that helped you along the way, but I know you, and I could say on on your behalf that you you meet those mentors and their guidance with your own drive and ambition, which we'll talk about in you know later in the show. Uh, and I think that speaks to how somebody breaks the mold. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more. But you t- you said there are three elements to what you do. Uh, you you talked about the crime fighting, which is the, yes. the base and foundation of being a police officer, and that you've gone into a path of counterterrorism. What's the third thing? So the third thing is what I'm doing more recently, which is law enforcement's use of technology. So a, a few years ago, I started specializing a little bit in that area, looking primarily at you know the use of social media to combat crime. But today, I'm much in a role that looks at a variety of technologies, which I'm happy to talk about a little later. Um, but yeah, but you're right. So crime fighting, counterterrorism, a huge part of who I am in my career. And then the third element is, is law enforcement's use of technology. But Beyond my law enforcement career, because that's not just who I am. You said, you know, who, what, who I am. And the other aspect is being an entrepreneur, which is somewhat relatively, I guess, to some people, it seems new. To me, it's been in existence for many years. But I, uh, not too long ago, a couple of years ago, I opened my own company. It's a training and consulting company, and we teach all over the country, some internationally. And again, specializing on teaching law enforcement and private sector, so including private security, in, a, in counterterrorism, active shooter prevention, uh, detecting uh, uh, behaviors of violent crime, and, uh, and also consulting in those areas. So that's a business that I'm very proud of that I built from scratch. What's it called? Uh, it's called ThreatPoint. Okay. Um, so I'm very proud of uh, of that business. Do you do you handle cyber security stuff for Metro, uh, or, or is that under your department or somewhere else? No. So it is under a different department. I've had a role in it as because I've most of my career, while it's been in counterterrorism, is also related or been a part of our fusion center, our Southern Nevada Counterterrorism Center. And as a whole, the fusion center has had a little bit of a role in cyber uh, in, in cyber protection. It's huge right now. We just had a forecast event from one of uh, I'm in the commercial real estate industry, and there was a, one of the associations every year puts on a forecast event, and the president of Bank of Nevada said what keeps him up at night right now is uh, cybersecurity issues with their clients. So it's got to be massive, I imagine. It's a significant concern, but I, but I will say that we have to we have to be careful because a lot of fear is driven by not knowing, right? Ignorance to some extent, and cyber plays that role now because most of us aren't as technically savvy to understand the cyber threat. Then sometimes it is, in my opinion, and some people will kill me for saying this, but I do think in some cases it does get inflated because of the unknown uh, or uncertainty. Um, 
it's the same thing oh, we deal with terrorism. terrorism. Yeah. Absolutely, okay. same thing with terrorism. But it, it is real, and it is something that we do need to get ahead of. It is more prevalent, I think, from a um, private security standpoint. So in other words, protecting people from uh, financial fraud, uh, cyber attacks that result in financial fraud or identity theft, those are very real. And, uh, and criminals are doing that to, to make profit. But when you start thinking about major cyber attacks or cyber terrorism, um, I, I don't think that has come to a point yet. Uh, it's certainly on the horizon, but it's come to a point yet where it has overshadowed some of the more persistent threats we're dealing with on a daily basis today. So you're a crime fighter, counterterrorism, Jack Bauer guy, <laughs> technology... <laughs> Uh, you're an entrepreneur. What else? Is that it? Uh, you know what? Yeah, we, we can leave it at that. We don't have now, to. But, what else? Uh, no, uh, you know what? Law enforcement, entrepreneur, and uh, certainly uh, my family, my uh, my mother, my brothers play a big role in my life. Uh, but other than that, that's that really defines who I am, uh, I think, at the moment. <laughs> at the moment. Yes. Uh, so, Dory, you know, this show is about my takeaways from the people who I've learned from and that have influenced me. You're certainly one of those people. I want to jump right in and ask you what one thing or event or person has defined or shaped you the most in your life. So for me, I would say there are a couple things, maybe even a person or two uh, that kind of made that answer that question for me. One is certainly my career choice, which I just talked about. Uh, it's very common for law enforcement officers to be defined by the law enforcement career, more so than many other career fields. Um, is that, that because you're always on, so to speak? Your mind is always, you're, you're usually, when you become a law enforcement officer, you transform yourself. You really do. You start thinking differently. So one is, for a lot of law enforcement officers, they carry a gun and a badge every day in their life, which is very different than the average citizen. And so carrying a gun and a badge becomes part of your identity. Thinking like a law enforcement officer f- changes your identity. So what like, do I mean by that? Yeah, what's uh, an example of that? Well, so when you're trained to start so let me, let me set up like this. If Please. you and I are at, at a bar and we're just sitting there having some appetizers and, and some whiskey at And Iron specifically, I'm on one side, you're on the other side, we're both at the same place. What's going through your mind different than what's going through my mind? So a lot of law enforcement, they do a lot of mental conditioning, right? primarily when they're on duty, but it does you can't turn it on or off very easily. And what I mean by mental conditioning is you're preparing for worst case scenarios. So you're taught when you're particularly in patrol and you're in uniform and you drive up to the 7-Eleven to go get a soda on a, on a break, well, you have to be prepared that you may walk in Can to I a make robbery. a donut joke? No, no donut jokes. <laughs> yes, you're going in to get a donut. Are you really coffee. getting a soda or are you getting a donut? Listen, everybody says that <laughs> we're more into bagels than the donuts, but I don't know if that's true. Okay, um, sorry. So you're, you're at the 7-Eleven just yeah, but, casually so, getting a soda. Casually, but your mindset is always different. Particularly when you're in uniform, you're starting to think, worst case scenario, you're looking at people's hands to see if they have weapons. You're looking at license plates naturally because you're used to looking at license plates to be able to run them in the computer while you're in the car. You're walking in the store and you're also mentally conditioning. You're telling yourself, what happens if I all of a sudden get shot? How am I, how am I going to survive that? How am I going to deal with the encounter? And same, that translates to your personal life. So for example, now you go out with your wife or your girlfriend and you're sitting at a restaurant. Now you don't want your no, back. Stay, stay with the example of you and I are meeting at and iron at the bar. We're yeah. So, okay. Of, your example. Yeah. So you and I, you and I are going so to the bar and we're, uh, we're having a drink. Well, one, what do you see when you walk through the front door? So first, uh, for, what are you looking for? 
Um, so usually, you, I mean, you look for suspicious persons first, and, and, and once you look at an individual and if you think they're suspicious, one of the first things you look at is their hands. What are they holding? Um, but the other thing you do is once you settle in is a lot of law enforcement officers don't like having their, their back facing the door because think about it. If someone comes in and does a robbery, you can't see it coming. Mm-hmm. And so these, there's just little things that change in your personality and your behavior, and that makes you a different person. And by doing so, it defines part of who you are. Okay. It, it, make, it makes your identity. This is why law enforcement officers have a hard time when they retire. You know, they, they spend 25, 30 years in this career field, and then they leave it, and they realize that was everything they used to be. So I wouldn't say it's everything that I am, but it's, but it's certainly a you. huge part, yeah, of what okay. defines me. You said now, there was a couple of things. Yes. Yeah, so the second aspect of that, I think, is, is work, my work ethic, my commitment towards that job, which can be on a varying degree, right? There's different levels of work ethic or commitment that anyone gives to their job. And for me, I've always had this very, very strong work ethic, this passion for my job. And so when I run into you, I run into my friends, you know, they always ask me, where have I been? Why are you working so hard? And, and it just defines who I am. And, and uh, you know, some people call it a workaholic, but I, I, I must find some kind of fulfillment or joy by working so hard because I do it. And that defines part of who I am. But, but I would say beyond that, the, the third thing, um, that only those who know me well seem to know, um, because it's not as visible, is my relationship with my mom and my brothers. Uh, that certainly defines, they define a big part of who I am. My, uh, my mom is an amazing woman. Uh, she's done some amazing things. You know, some people call me a mama's boy, and that's true. Um, granted, my brother... I, I called you a mama's boy as we were talking right before this. Yes, you did call me a mama's boy. And, you know, listen, some people... I've heard it. This is not the first time. I've heard it before. Uh, but my brothers are also in the same boat. You know, we're all the same, and we're, we're we're like that for a reason because you have to meet my mom to understand why. I've met your mom. I you know have. Why. Yeah, she's an amazing woman, but it's mainly because she sacrificed everything for us and uh, she really was a friend of ours growing up during a very tough time. And so for us, we uh, it's my relationship with her, but also my relationship with my brothers that really define, what I, the re- define who I am and uh, guide me in what I do in my life. What do you think, what life event occurred for you to guide you toward a career in law enforcement and or what life event or events occurred for you that gave you such a strong and intense work ethic? So I don't think, for me, I've thought about that question before, and I don't think, particularly the latter part of that question, I don't think is a particular life event. Now, certainly my upbringing, my, you know, my father left when I was a young kid. How old were you? Uh, I don't know, probably like 10 or 11 or so, 12. Um, but he left my mom with, my mom is, has, it's me and three brothers, four boys, and just to, how old were all of you? You were ten. How old was your older uh, brother? Let's say thirteen, fourteen. He's three, four years older than me. Okay. My younger brothers. Uh, well, actually, let me let me back up. Actually, we were younger because I'll give you the full picture, which again explains I think why I cherish my mom and and really inspired by her. But my mom immigrated here to the United States from Israel. She did not speak very good English. She eventually made her way to Las Vegas. She was pregnant with my youngest brother. So she already has. She she was pregnant. She had a one-year-old. She had me, which would have been actually closer to six or seven now that I think about it, uh, and my older brother, let's say closer to ten. Four boys immigrated, didn't, didn't necessarily have the ability to just go get any job, didn't have any real money to help her out, and our dad left us. Um, and with all that, 
she completely overcame the odds, and she did so in an amazing way because she never made us feel like life was miserable. I mean, we had a my 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 home we grew up in with my mom was very loving and very fun, and so my mom did these amazing things somehow, and she and it was not easy. Uh, she she struggled through life, and we did at times too, but ultimately she did this amazing thing by raising these four boys by herself without being able to get an easy job. <clears throat> excuse me, without being able to get an easy job. And uh, so in that sense, but but with that, the reason why I bring that up is because I don't see that as the life event that made me who mm-hmm. I am. Because one, I have no regrets. Everything that happened from that moment forward made made all of me and my brothers, made us who we are today, but it wasn't one life event. It was a certain upbringing that had lasted for 10 years um, that defined who I was. So it's hard to define it to one thing, and I don't think it has to do with my father leaving. There's no, I don't really think about that at all in life, um, but I do think about the way we were raised by our mom, uh, what we saw in her. I mean, the song, I always think about the song, the country song, Humble and Kind, because Despite, do you want to sing it? No, I can. It's one thing I can definitely not do is sing. I am a terrible singer. Um, but that's humble and kind. Hum, yeah. I, well, and I, I wonder if that's the actual title, but that's the country song they they talk about, humble and kind, um, about always being humble and kind. And I, the the thing about that is, my mom was dealt the worst hand that she could be dealt in life, and she was always humble and kind to everyone. And uh, and was was happy with the simple things in life. So, anyways, I uh, and then my brothers the same way. We all kind of grew up in that same environment. Now, keep in mind, when we grew up here in Las Vegas, I grew up in some of the worst parts of town, and maybe that contributed or inspired part of the reason why I went into law enforcement. But I, uh, the first dead body I saw was not as a police officer. You know, uh, yeah. And so, how, look, how old are you? Uh, probably thirteen, fourteen. Um, but but with that said, no. Where where was it? Uh, I was at an apartment complex. I was living it. Um, what area? Of someone town? had been uh, nor- uh, northeast side of town, or excuse me, southeast side of town. Technically, so you're um, thirteen. You coming home from school? No, we were just out. It was nighttime. We were out just playing around in you and your apartment friends? complex. Yeah, and uh, someone ended up getting shot and killed. Did you um, see that happen? Didn't see the shooting, but did uh, you hear it? Heard the shooting, and believe it or not, you grew up in those areas. You kind of run over to see what's going on. Not necessarily run away at times. Uh, and what, you, was it why? Because it was like a regular occurrence. Uh, yeah, I mean, crime was a regular occurrence. But what about um, gunshots? That was the first time I'd I'd heard gunshots and seen a dead body. Um, but and it didn't traumatize me. It, it um like I said, you grow up in the certain tough neighborhoods, and you just kind of this kind of so your you way and your buddies of life. run over. Yes, uh, and we I mean we see someone laying down on the ground. Cops are responding, and obviously we didn't stay around very long or whatnot. But um, but that was the first time I saw a dead body. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, all of those life events certainly influenced me in some way or another. Um, but it's different because a lot of times you grow up in those neighborhoods, you're surrounded by gangs, by drugs. Uh, by violence, and usually you fall victim to those things. And uh, for me, what do you mean by falling victim? Uh, you, usually you follow you the get same seduced path. Seduced into that lifestyle yeah. because that's what you see and what you know. Yeah, usually you do. And uh, you know, I think it's only because of my mom, and again, the reason why we cherish her so much that me and all of my brothers did not fall victim to that. Uh, that we that not only did we not fall victim to that, but we all chose a uh, life of public service. Um, you know, uh, so let's uh, stay. Let's stay with that. Uh, you and I really met and established our friendship and relationship when you were a freshman in college. Uh, I was a junior, I want to say. Okay. Maybe I was going into my senior year or my 
it took you know a standard graduation is five years at UNLV, and I'm <laughs> I'm a standard guy, not like you. Um, I took my time as well. Don't but worry. one thing was unique is the summer between you graduating high school and you being a freshman in college at UNLV, you rushed uh, black fraternity. <laughs> yeah, that uh, is not public knowledge, but until now. <laughs> okay, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> but it was, well, it's interesting because, um, you know, breaking the, uh, the it, it, it's, you know, those, I'm, I, I don't know, maybe I'm asking, what led you to that? Are these your friends that, that, that um, recruited you? Was there something there? Because, you know, it goes into one of the first collaborations that you and I had, which was, this is... I have to set this up so everyone gets the right idea. You know, we're in a fraternity, and, and fraternities and sororities are very active on college campuses, doing a variety of different things, a lot of them surrounding philanthropy. And you know, sororities, when they do their big philanthropy, they get all the fraternities to participate, and they set up different things, like you have to do a bake sale and you know, raise some money there, you have to do a car wash, whatever, and then... Uh, there's always some kind of talent show or display of talent and you're either singing or you're dancing or you're doing some kind of play. And the influence that you brought to, we we were in a Jewish fraternity. So think about 30 Jewish college kids (laughs) at UNLV. And you said, guys, what would be awesome for this sorority event talent show is if we do a step show. And if you don't know what stepping is, uh, you know, Google it because it's fascinating. There's, it's rich in culture. It's rich in history. Uh, and it's um, you get a group of people to all do the same routine, and the key to it is is the precision and the discipline. My hat's off to anybody who's involved with this because the discipline that it takes, the commitment that it takes to the routine is almost like nothing I've experienced before. And you brought one life event, which was you were rushing that fraternity, and you learned a lot of that there, and you brought it to us. Correct. And yeah. I remember, I remember something also interesting. The the fraternities and sororities at UNLV came to see what we were doing to make sure that it was in accordance with the with the history <laughs> and the culture because they take it very seriously. Absolutely. Yes. And it's and the the positive was they saw what we did. It was in honor of what they were doing, not in disrespect of what they were doing. And everything was great and wonderful together. And interestingly, if I remember right. Another thing kind of cascaded from that, which was the um, Jewish fraternity, the black fraternities and sororities, the LGBTQ organizations on campus have um, then they planned a during Passover, uh, the Jewish holiday of, of oppression. They planned an, a, a, a Seder around what it means for all these different organizations to, to be oppressed. And I think it's still going on today. Yeah, that is amazing. And this is back in the you know early, it was probably 2010, yeah. 12 or something. Uh, even, yeah, even earlier than that, I think. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that was one of our first time that we collaborated on something um, interesting. So, because I think it points out a couple things about me, and it's I'm really just thinking about it here uh, as you're saying it. But um, yes, I, I in high school, I ended up joining a high school club that was a stepping club. It's primarily, ah. yeah. Well, no. So, well, what I ended up, you're right. I did end up pledging a, a black fraternity as well. That was what was it called? Uh, so I, uh, the Sigma Beta Club was what I was a part of okay. in high school, and the fraternity was Phi Beta Sigma, which is an amazing fraternity. They, they, they actually. 
it's important, I think, to point out about both the Sigma Beta Club and Phi Beta Sigma that it is not even the primary focus is not even stepping. Certainly that's what brings people together. But the amazing thing is about the these fraternities, those stepping fraternities in particular, is that they really build amazing leaders, I think. Um I, I think of individuals who went through those fraternities, um, and even the high school club, and they really keep those the kids in high school on track, but also in the fraternity they help define individuals to become good leaders. So uh I have a lot of respect for everyone I know that's in those fraternities or was. But but naturally for me, I was in this high school step club. My best friend was in it, so I decided to join. I was probably one of the worst guys in high school on the on the step team. Granted I did have some some highlight opportunities. At one point I uh I had a chance to uh uh, we we did an opening for a genuine genuine concert in uh, here in Las Vegas, and that was one of my highlights in high school. And granted, I can if you looked at the video, if it ever exists, I'm probably the worst guy on the stage, but I was very proud to be part of that team. Um, but anyway, so I joined. Uh, so naturally, I decided to to try to pledge the the fraternity that was over kind of seeing that high school club. Uh, ultimately, I decided it wasn't for me at the end, uh, despite them being great individuals and it being a great organization. But I, I had some of those skill sets and interests. And so when I went to UNLV, we eventually met, and I uh, ended up joining a Jewish fraternity. I, uh, I decided to kind of intersect those fields. And the best, it's an amazing book. I love it. It's called The Medici Effect. I didn't think about it then. I didn't even read the book then. But it talks about you know innovation coming from an intersection of different fields, different career fields, different ideas. Uh, and that's what we truly did. We intersected something that was completely different to, into a Jewish fraternity. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, 30 Jewish guys up there t- mm-hmm. about to try to do a step routine was very different. Um, but uh, so I, I bring that up, you know, to kind of create the, the persona of who you were when I met you. You were also, if I remember right, working two jobs. Oh, yeah. I, like I said, I since a young kid, I worked a lot. Uh, so when I was 10 or 11, I uh, I went out with my mom because, like I said, we had to, we had to hustle. We mm-hmm. didn't have much money. I went to the, the swap meets, and I was selling at the, the outdoor swap meet. I think it's off Bonanza or something uh, when I was a young kid uh, because I had no choice. I had to pitch in help. And then uh, certainly I took my first real job, believe it or not, when I was about 13. I worked at a farm basket and was rolling coquitos, which, uh, you know, Thank God no one knew about it then because I'd get the owner in trouble for letting me do that. But really, I mean, he was a lifesaver. Till this day, mm-hmm. you know what? One of the individuals I haven't seen since I was a kid who did play a big role in helping me in life, uh, his name is Mark Hutchinson. I haven't seen him in, I don't know, 20 years, 30, a long time. And who was he? He was the owner. He was the owner who gave me a chance. He knew that. So I, I would hustle. I'd go to different businesses and I'd say, hey, I need to work. Uh, and originally that started with basic jobs you'd give a teenager, right? So I'm 13 years old. I'd w- roll into the, the pizza hut and say, hey, I need to work. And they say, all right, hand out flyers, give you 10 bucks. Same thing with the farm bass. I roll in and they say, all right, we'll come over on the weekend and, and pull weeds. In fact, when I went into the farm basket, I was in band. I was in junior high, sixth grade or something, and I needed to sell chocolates. What instrument did you play? I played trumpet. Uh, which is something that most people don't really know about me. Actually. Do you still play? Uh, I can play maybe some very minor tunes, but not not like not Mary very had well. A little yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I wish I could still play, uh, but but anyway. So I play trumpet, and I go in trying to hustle and sell these chocolates. A farm basket. The owner happened to be there. I uh, he played trumpet as a kid, so he bought a bunch of chocolate for me. And then, of course, you know, always be closing. I decided, I said, hey, I need to work. Uh, I need a job this weekend. And, and he said, all right, come back on the weekend, pull weeds. And so I came back and eventually he let me, you know, go in the back and start rolling coquitos and start working because he, he knew I was coming from a family of three other or four kids and my mom by How herself. How did he know that? 
me telling him most likely, you know, talking to him and stuff. And, and he gave me an opportunity to really make some money and, um, as a kid mm-hmm. and that, that money helped support my family, which was nice. Um, but yeah, so since a very young age, I've always worked. So by the time you met me in college, I was also working a lot. Um, but the re- I mean, it's not just one of the things I've learned about you. It's not that you necessarily were working just to contribute to the family. It was, it was also, and specifically to help raise your two younger brothers. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, and I, and I, I'm, yeah, help. Uh, I didn't raise them by myself, but obviously my mom would have to go and work. She was a taxi driver for many years, hard job to do in the middle of the night. Um, and I had to help raise my two younger brothers. My older brother eventually had joined the military very early. So it was me, my two younger brothers, and, uh, they are the most amazing young men I think you would ever meet. And I don't want to talk about what they're doing in their careers because they, they can, they're very private about it, but they are doing amazing things. And so I, I take a lot of pride in that because yes, as a, a, you know, when I was younger, I helped my mom raise those kids and I even helped them all the way through college and everything else. So that, that are you still helping them? Part. Uh, in terms of being there for them and helping them with guidance, yes, they're they're adults, they're on their own, they're doing their thing. But I uh, I still help them in terms of being uh, someone give them mentorship and guidance. So let's kind of talk more about what you're doing at Metro. Sure. Um. So right now, you're, first of all, you're a lieutenant. Correct. So lieutenant's and you kind talked of about you were a detective, a sergeant, a lieutenant. What are the differences? So. Uh, Generally, uh, there's officers and there's detectives, which I think most people understand the difference. Now, sergeant is a first-line supervisor. Now, you can be a sergeant over officers, or you can be what we call a detective sergeant, a sergeant that supervises detectives. So I've done both of those. And then you can do the same thing as a lieutenant. You can be a lieutenant in patrol, which I've done for a very short period of time. And then you can also be a uh, lieutenant in a specialized unit, which is what I'm currently doing, which I have a set of detectives and I also have officers. It's kind of a, it's a mid-level manager essentially. So I have first-line supervisors that work for me and those first-line supervisors have troops or personnel that work for them. Um, right now I am, uh, I'm helping stand up a brand new unit. It's called the technical operations section. And it really is about, um, deploying advanced technologies to fight crime and terrorism. It's extremely exciting. I think it's the future of law enforcement. Uh, so if you think about it, I call it the virtual crime fighter right now, because of technology, we are seeing that in some cases, not all you, uh, one police officer or police specialist behind a keyboard can have more impact or be more effective than maybe even three cops on the street, which is a fascinating concept, right? Now you'll why? Always, well, you'll always need a police officer eventually to kick in a door, arrest somebody, give first aid, and so on and so forth. So that will never go away. But a big portion of policing is just identifying the crime, locating the suspect, and and preventing crime from happening. And a lot of those factors of policing can happen virtually because of the uh, growth of technology or the evolution of technology. Is that because crime is moving more toward it starts with some kind of technology activity? No, I don't think so. I mean, that's a part of it, right? I mean, someone's online, so then police go online. Yes, it's part of it. But no, it's more about just developments in technology that allow us to extend our reach into, you know, into the community more so than one. So let's put it like this way. One officer in a car driving down the street trying to spot, trying to identify suspicious behavior or crime, or trying to prevent it just by being visible. Well, now you can have a camera with blue and red lights that is now visible in a community that prevents crime 
or has much more of an ability to identify crime than one officer with two with you know two eyes. So you have a variety of technologies that have that that are becoming normal in law enforcement, right? So you have cameras that are being viewed in real time, uh, you know, crime cameras. Uh, you have what we're deploying now is this pilot um, of a gunshot detection technology, which is fascinating. But basically, it's these acoustic listening devices that we partner with the community to install, and these devices are designed to identify to to identify gunshot crimes. So when someone shoots somebody or shoots in the air, the the listening devices will pick up on the gunshots, triangulate the location, and then let law enforcement know, hey, a shooting just happened and where it happened. A very promising technology. Granted, we're, we're only piloting it, so we have to see how effective it is. Um, but the general assumption right now is that Roughly, what, what's proposed is that 80% of gunshot crimes in some neighborhoods go unreported. That's a huge number of crimes. 80%? 80%. So someone hears a shooting and doesn't report it. Maybe they don't report it because they think someone else is calling it in, or maybe they just don't care because there's so many shootings happening the in The bystander effect? Yeah, potentially. Then the other thing is once someone does call in the crime, we go to where the person who called us called it in usually. And that may not be exactly where the gunshots occurred. So this technology, if it works the way we think it may, offers a, a you know ability to prevent shootings from happening and help save lives. How do lives. you prevent though? Well, so it, uh, if uh, prevention in the sense of catching one shooter so they can't do another shooting. So we've seen okay. a lot of repeat offenders. Um, but there's other technologies that are designed for prevention. So let's say, or um, let's say with even the gunshot technology, an example would be that we've had recently, it identifies a gunshot that happens. No one was shot by chance, but police go there, are able to identify who committed the crime. They end up arresting that individual and recovering the firearm. Now that's off the street. Hopefully, it. prevent something from happening. But there's all kinds of technologies. Whether it's license plate readers that, like, we had a license plate reader that identified a wanted suspect who was wanted for a child molestation case, a very significant one, and we would have never caught him if we didn't get that license plate reader uh, hit. So a lot of these technologies, again, we're very careful in how we use them because just as important as it is to fight crime is to protect the privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties of the people we we serve. Uh, so we balance that out with the technologies we have. But certainly, these technologies are assisting us in preventing violence from happening, which, you know, I have to say, I'm not saying it just because I'm a lieutenant, but, you know, the Sher- Sheriff Lombardo's top priority uh, it has always been, you know, to prevent violent crime, violent crime reduction, which is what we're focusing on. Can we talk about 1 October? Uh, very briefly. I mean, I don't, uh, the, you know, we're not talking very, uh, we can't sp- talk about specifics about the incident, what happened. I can tell you personally that I, uh, I did respond from home. I wasn't one of the first initial officers there, but I did respond from home like many officers uh, did. Uh, police officers from across the, the city, so not just Las Vegas, but uh, all kinds of officers and other first responders, uh, all self-dispatched in, in you know the hopes of trying to help. Um, but uh, I was there. Um, it is a, a very tragic incident, something that um, very difficult to deal with as an organization and as a community. You um, lost a friend. Uh, I did lose a friend. Um, his name is Charleston Hartfield. He's a great cop. He was in my academy. Um, he had just written a book. Uh, I'd highly recommend taking Plug a look it. at his book. How do we find it? Uh, go on Google. If you just Google Charleston Hartfield book, you'll be able to find it on Amazon. Um, Charleston? Charleston Hartfield. Yeah. Hartfield. Yep. Um, but he's... Uh, you know it's a good man. Uh, you know what? I don't have top my top of my head. I read the book, but I can't remember the title of it at the moment. Uh, but it's basically his memoirs or his stories of uh, his time in, in here in law enforcement and in, and in the military as well. Um, but Charleston is an amazing cop. Everyone knows that, especially those that were in his academy. Um, 
Yeah, and you know, uh, I I don't want to talk too much about October one, but I will tell you that um, you know my sheriff has said it, the county commission has said it. In fact, the president himself has said it, and uh, you know the officers that were there on scene the first responders, the the medical personnel and everyone else who were there on scene um, and even the citizens that were there that helped out did an amazing job. Um, and it's something to really be proud of as a community. Um, the way our community responded to that, I think is unbelievable. Um, so just amazing work by the men and women out there. So I looked up the book, Charleston Hartfield. It's the title is memoirs of a public servant. And yes. It's important that we talk about this. And if, you're interested by by the book because if I understand correctly, any proceeds obviously goes to help support his family at this Correct. point. Yeah. Uh, I want to say one thing about it, um, which interesting to me is I was following it, you know, from when I first saw the alert on my phone, uh, you know, with with the weeks after. At some point, Sheriff Lombardo was talking about one of the differences that was made that that night. Wow. I don't know if he himself went or if people from Metro went to study the attacks in, I think it was in India? Mumbai, yeah. Mumbai. And a hotel. I don't know all the details of it all. Uh, do you? Do yeah, you I mean, know? it was uh, Lashkari Taiba. It was a terrorist organization. That what is it? Lashkari Taiba. Okay. Uh, they ended up doing an attack, a terrorist attack. Uh, Lashkari Taiba is tied into Al-Qaeda, particularly at that time. Uh, and they conducted an attack in Mumbai. Uh, uh, multiple assailants, multiple weapons, firearms, explosives. Um, and at that time, because of the type of attack, it was, it was a targeted against a tourist corridor, hotels in particular, let's say, that because of that, uh, our agency picked up on it and wanted to prepare for something like that. And so, yes, uh, they were. we had the forward-leaning leadership to decide to send personnel out there, learn from what happened, bring it back, establish programs here that I think were instrumental in the 1 October event. And the difference maker from what was learned there was uh, before the Mumbai attack, the protocol was if there's a shooting like this, you create a perimeter around the shooter and wait. I don't know what the, the protocol was before, but then what they learned was you don't wait. You don't create a perimeter. You engage the shooter immediately. Yeah, so that's when we talk about what we call active shooter. So you know, if you have an active shooter situation, it's now more common in law enforcement that the protocols are you have to address the threat to minimize the loss of life. And, um, so we, and we actually, we experienced that in 2014 when we lost two of our officers as well, you know, uh, in, in the Is ambush the attack. Yep. Walmart and the CC speed. So we lost two officers and a brave citizen who tried to intervene. Um, but, but the same thing when you were dealing with an active shooter, you, you certainly cannot set up a perimeter and try to capture the individual. You have to actually stop the threat mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. And that was learned there and here. Well, learned it learned throughout a variety of ambushes, attacks. Learned through a variety of active shooters. I mean, the Columbine school attack that is infamous that we grew up with. Uh, same thing is you you cannot just set up a perimeter. You have to go in. And so officers, uh, law enforcement has adapted pretty quickly uh, to being able to deal different types of threats, whether it's an active shooter or do you have a, a true hostage situation where you do have to set up a perimeter, negotiate, and try to get a peaceful resolution. So let's switch gears a little bit. We talked about one our well, you know, one of our first ever collaborations, which was the the me learning how to step step dance in college. Another one shortly after, and I hope you can fill in the details because my memory is a bit shoddy on this. So my first job out of college was working for Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity as a consultant. And the summer after I graduated, I went to Indianapolis where the headquarters is. 
for training and to gear up for the coming year. You you also came to Indianapolis that summer. I did. If I remember right. I, I don't remember in what- Internship. An yeah. internship. Mm-hmm. And you had a specific, uh, let's call it a mission that you were working on the, under your internship and why you were there. Is that- uh no, I, it just general internship. So I did. I picked up. Well, what was I the was, purpose of it? Why were you? Uh, so we did a variety of things. I, I think I was just per, trying to get more involved nationally with the fraternity. And as you remember, as you will remember, soon after that internship, I ended up um, uh, getting the position of Supreme Board of Governors. So it's a leadership role yeah. as an undergraduate, Correct. and you sit on the board of directors. Yes, the first experience as a young child, young child, young kid, uh, learning how to deal with multi-million dollar budgets and housing situations and and significant employment situations and so and bureaucracy, and bureaucracy, politics, yeah, of course, absolutely. that doesn't exist on the Alpha Epsilon Pi board. <laughs> um, but I remember specifically sitting in the conference room uh, at the very end, not at the head, but just just uh, right of it in the chair. Uh, key, uh, not keyboard, laptop in front of me, you standing behind me. I was writing. You were communicating the message that you wanted written. Do you remember what we were working on? Because I have no, no clue. I, I just I, remember that moment, though. I don't remember which that one was. I mean, you and I have had this amazing working relationship, particularly... Oh, I t- so I'm going to take a guess. I don't know for sure. But I know around that time frame, as I said, I was running for that Supreme Board of Governor office. Ah, yeah, maybe. And a I speech? needed a speech. Okay. And so you, Haim here is, you know, you've been my, uh, you've really helped in some of my I'm your speech ghost writing. I'm your ghostwriter. In some, in some, um, but especially early in my career, so in my fraternity days, and then also even my uh, my academy when I my uh, when I did my academy speech, you really helped me piece together that. And uh, you know, when I graduated from police academy, I was uh, honorably I was selected by my academy mates to do the speech, and you helped me with that. So I think that's what that was about. I think so. But it's a great segue into the police academy speech that we collaborated on. Yes. So set that up. You're in the police academy. You were still in college, I believe. I took a break from college just for the academy for the six months and then went right back. Okay. Um, so imagine you're in the police academy. Uh, every graduating class has the P, the the cadets. Is that what your guys are called? Recruits. Uh, recruits. recruits vote on who gets to give the graduation speech, Correct. if I remember correctly. And they selected you out of a class of 72, I want to say. Yes, yeah, so it was me and one other amazing cop uh, that we were, were they were picking between, and I was selected. You guys arm wrestled and you won? <laughs> no, no, no. He's probably bigger uh, than We you. both wanted. He is bigger than me. You're not uh, very big. Thank you. I don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> or not. <laughs> so you were selected. Yes, I was selected. now this is, so I, I want to unpack this a bit, because if we look at just this thing, and, you know, you're selected by your peers to give a speech to represent their experience. Correct. Yeah. Uh, it's a graduation speech. And there's, there's, there are components here for this moment in life, whether it's you being selected by the recruits to give the graduation speech or anybody listening that is, you, you know, you're on. This is your time. You have the microphone. And, and what you can do or what you, you would do if you're Dory to prepare for this moment so the components and, and fill in any of the gaps. One, you have to write a speech. Yep, you and, do. And it could be just, hey, here's a speech, or it could be a speech with an intention. Correct, and yeah. I wanna, I'm, gonna, I'm wrestling with, not wrestling, I'm exploring a concept right now in my life, uh, intention and posture. In anything that we do, we should decide what is our intention. And that when I say anything, I mean anything. Like I'm doing my business plan for the year. What's my intention for the year? To I'm going to go have lunch with my brother. What is my intention for this conversation? 
anything should have an intention. And when you establish the intention, your posture should match. And I don't just mean sitting up in your chair. I mean, your, your, your physical posture, your mental posture, your spiritual posture. So we had an intention with this speech and it wasn't just for you to get up and get, get, you know, over the eight or 12 minutes of, of saying the words we wanted to bring in the audience Yes, you're to, right. To yeah. an experience. And the audience, we were careful about identifying who is our audience. And there were there was a primary and a secondary. The primary was your fellow recruits because you were speaking not just for them, but to them and with them. And then the the secondary audience was the extension of the recruits going through this this um what do we want a, a program the the police academy or experience which which was family significant others uh girlfriends spouses anybody who helped the recruit get through the police academy yeah well to add to that though if you remember there was also a unique balancing act that year so it wasn't it was unlike any other police graduation mainly because we uh we lost a uh, no, hold on we'll get to day. that oh, okay hold All on, right. we'll get to that because <laughs> that's when we're in the speech we're, we're not there yet. We were sitting out to say, what do we want to accomplish? Yes. And I remember we wanted people to cry. And I don't want to say that like in a braggadocious way or we wanted... We wanted them to, to feel it, not cry. We wanted them to feel an emotional connection to the words. We wanted, I didn't want it to be just a joking speech. We, we did have some jokes. I didn't want it to be just a... Um, you know, a speech that talked about how great our academy was or how great we would do or what you see like in most, you know, college, you know, graduation speeches, just talking about the future. We actually wanted to have an emotional connection. We wanted to bring the audience into what you guys had gone through over how long was the police academy? Six months, roughly. Six month experience. And like anything else, I mean, we t- you, if anyone wants to hear the speech, it's on YouTube. Yeah, I wouldn't know if you would just Google <laughs> your name, Dory, Probably. D-O-R-I, Corin, K-O-R-E-N, uh, I don't know if it's police academy or Las Vegas Metro Police or what have you, but just like the experience of what you would expect someone going through a police academy, which is an arc, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. There was an arc in the speech. Yes. And the arc, again, our intention was we want people to feel an emotional connection. I, I'm going to say I wanted people to cry. <laughs> and uh, again, uh, we weren't you know cocky about it, but we were we had an intention and we wanted to put the work in and 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 it was work. Yes. We wanted to put the work in to match the words with the experience and bring people back to that moment. Correct. But yep. then once that was established, you, I had nothing to do with it. You had to match that intention, which I hope I communicated it's in, it was intense. You had to match that intention with a posture. Talk about the posture. How did you prepare for that speech? Oh man, it, that one was a grind. So over the years I I've become I've become pretty decent, I think, at public speaking, and uh, You're so speeches. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I get nervous every single time. It takes prep work every time. I don't. I'm not perfect, um, but I certainly have gotten better. And I will tell people those that a lot of people they fear public speaking, and it, it truly is one of those things that you just have to force yourself to do. And after you do it enough, you get better at it. I remember I'm going to reverse back a little bit to the other speech where we worked on for when I ran for springboard of governors for the fraternity. I I don't know remember if you were sitting next to me, but before I got called up as part of to do my candidate speech, I'm sitting there, and I remember turning to my friend. I don't remember if it was you at the time. And I'd prepared my speech, and I had a great speech. But I remember them calling my name, and I turned to my friend, and I said, hey, my, my legs feel like jelly. I don't think I can move. 
And I swear to God, I remember this to this day because I really was panicking. I told him, I, I really believed in my heart that I would not physically be able to sit up. And somehow, as soon as they called my name, I just I just sprung up and started walking towards the stage and, and I gave the speech and fortunately everything worked out. But my point of that is everyone gets nervous and I still get nervous to this day, but you have to force yourself. Now, that one was in front of five, 600 people and since then I've done also five, 600 up to a thousand people, different times, different things and you get better. Now, fast forward to, to this police graduation speech. Um, the posture, I mean, a couple things I guess I would share thinking about it off the top of my head and I've told this to my brothers not too long ago too. But the idea of um, confidence is key is so true. You have to have confidence to be successful in a lot of things, mm. but certainly in public speaking. How do you get confidence in public well, speaking? So, so some sense, confidence can be gained through that experience I just talked about. But in other ways, there is some truth about the whole fake it till you make it. You psych yourself out and you act a part. You, it's a theater to some extent. I'm going to push back a bit. Go ahead, please. Because I remember you... You worked. I worked hard on that. Yes, not hard. I mean, hard is like uh, it's a general <laughs> kind of a thing. You worked. It, it it was consuming. You're, if I remember right, there were I don't know if there were sergeants or what they were in your police academy that worked with you to so, help, help you prep for the speech. Yes, you. Memorized, I have to talk about who that was because to, he is an amazing man too. He was my attack officer. His name's John Pelletier. Today he's a captain on the police department. One of the uh, captain of the most important area command. It's our tourist corridor, or one of the most. The other captains will kill me for saying that, but um, but he was my attack officer at the time, and he took the time to sit in a room, and I would rehearse my speech, and we would he would we would work on word by word. If the tone was not right for the word, we would change it. If my pause was too long or too short, we would change it. If the word needed to be changed, it was very detail-oriented. So another aspect I would say in terms of posture is detail-oriented. You have to be detail-oriented. Um, but but to that, so yeah, no doubt, don't get me wrong, work hard. But even if I work hard, I'm st- I've am still never done a speech like that, a televised speech in front of hundreds but of people. you talked about confidence. So this is interesting. Yes. I had Rick Myers, who's the president of Thomas & Mack Development, on previously. And he's there's some parallels to what you're talking about, to what he brought up. Uh, he is the go-to moderator in the commercial real estate industry for any kind of panel or any kind of anything. And he talks about confidence and how you gain confidence. It's learned, uh, or he said it was, it's, it's earned. Uh, it's not given something to that effect. But in, in giving a speech, he also gets nervous. And he said, there, there are, there are uh, micro skills that you can learn to gain confidence, first and foremost, being prepared, which goes back to your TAC officer True. preparing you yeah. to the point where you had a 12-minute speech or eight-minute speech, however long it was. You memorized not just every word, every word, every pause, every emphasis, every... And that's why I tell people if you want to... If you if you have to give a speech and you want to prepare and see a how a, a great speech is delivered, that's a great example to find on YouTube and, oh, and watch you. it kind of, yeah. because it comes through. There were there was an interesting moment in the speech where, and I remember, I could say this because we wrote in uh, applause lines. Mm-hmm. We wrote in because we had that intention. We wrote in the pauses where people would take in the message and feel the emotion and the connection. And there was an applause line where the audience was a bit delayed. You gave the pause. They didn't applaud right away so you started you were probably three three letters into the next word then they start clapping and you i mean you you were polished enough to to stop there but it was interesting that 
Even yeah. though they were a bit delayed, it was it was written and designed and delivered that same way. But you know, you talked about confidence. I think the correlation to confidence in a speech, if you've given a thousand or this is your first one, is that preparation. Well, yes, but I will say that you that mental preparation too. So psyching yourself. That's where the the fake until you make it maybe is not the right analogy, but I'll tell you that you have to psych yourself out and psych even people in the room that you are prepared, that you are, you know, you are the best, that you are better than you are. And you know, I don't know where I read this, but I read one point where they're talking about gaining confidence before an interview. And they said, go into the bathroom for a little while and just, uh, and do the Superman po- or posture. You know, look in the mirror. Yeah, what's the Superman posture? You know, look in the mirror how Superman would stand, you know, right? Shoulders broad, you know, hands on your, on your, um, your waist and, you know, and, and it really, chest up. I'm doing it right now. Chest up. <laughs> you are, uh, it's a little unusual, but, but here's the thing. And I don't remember where I read it. And how do, I, don't I, how know, do I look confident? You do look confident, but here's the thing is it's not about you looking, you want to do that obviously in a speech, but my point is. <laughs> I read it and I thought, wait, oh, you want to do it in the bathroom before the speech yeah, because if you what, walk out to the podium <laughs> looking like I just looked, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. But I will tell you, I remember reading that. I'm thinking, oh, wait, that's that's comical. This, I mean, who would do that? There's some truth to it because it's not about, yeah, it seems funny. Everyone has their different tactics that they use, but all that is about mentally preparing yourself and telling yourself that you're ready. That you're, and it's it's no different than athletes that prepare for game days. And so that's even when if you don't think you're ready, or even if you didn't prepare, you have to go in thinking you you are flawless with a posture. Yes, with the posture. So we are we're I mean we're already into the takeaways portion of this. There are specific things that I've learned from you over the years that uh, I want to share. That I mean the, the these being some of them where in a collaboration, one of the things I learned from you is that you were able to pull some of my best work out of me. Whereas if I sat down to write a speech for myself, there's a level of, of quality that I'll get to. But your standard, your ethic, you channeled that into me and, and you, have, you extracted a higher level of work out of me through our collaborations. Um, you know, I, I wanted to spend some time to talk about another one of those collaborations. This was uh, late 2000, right before... Yeah, late 2000s, you called me and said, hey, I want to do a, uh, maybe it was mid-2000s, I, I want to apply for something, you're on a uh, need-to-know basis, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I need help writing an essay. Uh, I actually found the essay in my Google Docs, I, I hope it's not classified anymore <laughs> like it not, was back it then. It wasn't classified then, it was just the program I was applying to. What was the program? Uh, so the program was called SHARP, Summer Hard Problem Program. Uh, well, the acronym, Hold on. acronym Sharp? is SHARP, Summer? S-H-A-R-P, but it, what it stood for was Summer Hard Problem Program. I know that doesn't- Summer Hard exactly, Problem yeah. Program. Yeah, the, the, I know the acronym doesn't go word, uh, letter by letter, but that's the what the program was. What was it? Uh, so the program is since, it doesn't exist today. It's just since been defunded because it's a very expensive program for the government. But basically, the federal government put together a program for trying to solve difficult problems for the intelligence community, for our national security. And it's it's interesting. It's based off of um, slightly based off of an old program in government from back in the 1940s during World War II or even before that, for all I know, where the National Security Agency came up with these programs for code breaking, where they would try to find the 
best mathematicians in the world or in the country that they can find. They lock them up in a room and they basically say, hey, we need you to try to break these codes. Well, very similar concept where the Office of the Director of National Intelligence decided to say, hey, let's stand up this program, a think tank type of program, and let's select some of the best minds that we can find in different fields and bring them together and, and present them a very, very difficult problem. Um, so now some of a lot of what is done during the think tank is classified, and so I'm not going to talk about that, obviously, but uh, but basically – they in the program that I participate in, um, they they pick people from law enforcement, from the intelligence community, from private sector, you know, entrepreneurs and businessmen and women, uh, from academics, you know, PhDs that written books, and they'd find uh, it's a small group, thirty people or so, and uh, they would present them with a difficult problems. So one of the the essay you're referring to is I had to apply to this program, and at the time this is early on in social media, but we I want to look- give some dates because I think it's, sure, it's, please. it's important. Uh, you and I sat down probably 2006 to write this. Maybe a little later, but yes, close. Okay. It's important because 2008, if, I think if but- you think about back to that time, Facebook was started in 2004 mm-hmm. and the inception of Facebook, if people remember the story or watch the movie was that it was, it started just at Harvard and then it spread to other universities and then I don't know when exactly it became, you know, public or mainstream, but it wasn't very long after, maybe a year or two years after. And here we are, 2000. What, 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 I think it was 2008 that we were writing 2008, the essay. Where we're writing an essay, and if you know, I, I wanted to read portions of it, but I don't think because I want to get into other stuff. We have so much more to cover still. The overview of your application to this think tank was how social media, this new uh, technology, this new cultural experience that was um, spreading around the world uh, using social media uh, to fight terrorism, to counter terrorism and to counter terrorist organizations from using social media to radicalize people and bring them to the cause. Yeah. so So you were at the very cutting edge of this kind of stuff. I was trying to be, yes. Trying I, to be? I, well, because well, I only say that to try to be a little humble because the people that were part of that think tank were amazing people. And I'm very fortunate and very humble to have been a part of that group. Now, that was this was my application. This was my belief system. And, why, and I was trying to be forward-leaning on the topic. And that's maybe what helped me get into the program. Um, but you're right. That essay, we were look, I was looking already about how the inherent oversharing of information back mm-hmm. in 2008 could help us prevent terrorism. Uh, so we learned a lot. I mean, uh, the, there's a lot that uh, we've learned since then, a lot of breakthroughs that have happened. But that that experience, uh, that think tank, which is a remarkable program, uh, some of the most amazing individuals in the country participated in it, uh, that think tank ended up being a springboard for my career because it really, uh, I, I remember getting to the program and I was only one of two law enforcement officers chosen. And fifty percent of the people around me had a PhD and had written a book, and they were much more experienced and knowledgeable. And they, I and remember, you had only half written an essay. I was a, I, I was a cop for three years. Yeah, you helped me write the essay, but I was only a cop for two or three years. I was brand yeah. new. And what did I? Well, know? What did you bring to the table there? Well, so here's the thing. So I remember sitting there in the first like introductions, and everyone is trying to figure out how they got selected. And I remember getting asked people, and it was very degrading. I remember I called my brother, and I'm like, hey, I think I'm in the wrong place. Because people are asking me, oh, you know, uh, where would you go to school? What degree do you have? And I said, I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Go, oh, really? Did you go to what school did you go? Assuming that I went to Harvard or Yale, I went to UNLV. Uh, what do you do? I'm a cop. And they didn't understand it wasn't adding up. You know, I didn't have this wealth of knowledge or experience. But that was the brilliant part of this program, in my opinion. 
they wanted to bring together truly different thinking. And so they wanted to have the, those that are super experienced and knowledgeable and academically sound, but they also wanted to have the naive and, and not, you know, those that were smart and, and uh, able to learn quickly and, and contribute, but not necessarily already set in their ways or already experienced. Uh, so yeah, for me, it was a tremendous springboard. I, uh, I, it was a challenge in the first week, but eventually I found out that I had some, some strong, uh, I had some strengths that others did not, and uh, I was able to contribute to that program. I'm taking notes. <laughs> All right, so let's let's dive into a few more things. People can already see uh, you're you're very ambitious, you have incredible drive. What is the difference in your mind between those two things? Oh, interesting. So, I I have no idea what the official definition of drive is, or for that matter even what the official definition of of ambition, but I I'll tell you what it means to me. Uh, and those are two important aspects of my life for sure. For me, ambition is having the desire to do something or to go somewhere, to do something that you haven't already done or to go somewhere that you haven't already gotten to. Um, So ambition is having that desire. Drive is the ability to fulfill that desire. So it's the ability to get that thing that you want to get or get to that place you want to get to. Uh, Those are the main differences for me between ambition and drive. So if I'm understanding, so if I have ambition, let's just say, to bring it simply, I want to go from here to Los Angeles. I have an ambition to get there. Drive is how am I going to get there? I yeah, car, I think that's a fair analogy, but I let's take airplane. it. Yeah, but let's use, let's say, a career-wise. So okay. if you're, you're um, a real estate analyst, let's say, in a big corporation, and now you all of a sudden, you can be content where you are and you don't necessarily let's have an you're, ambition. Let's say you're an analyst at Harrah's, gaming analyst okay, at Harrah's. Okay, gaming analyst at Harrah's. Um, but now you all of a sudden have this ambition where you really want to you know, be the manager or you want to open your own firm. Uh, and so that's the ambition. Now the drive is how do I get there, the ability to get there. Okay. Now, maybe this is a great segue into uh, one of the things you and I talked about. Well, which no. is, let me, let me kind of set this up. One, I don't know how many months ago it was, two or three months ago, you sent me a text. It started with a picture. Yes. There's but a- you know what? Before, I would just say, so that's, it is a good segue, but I, let me, let me okay. just clarify something about ambition and drive, I think, that, that I think will help. So for me, let's say, if we're unpacking it just a little bit more, yes. what I mean by drive. Um, drive so when I say the ability to be able to, to to fulfill your desire, what does that mean? Really, to me, it means grit. That's what it means. So grit is basically the ability to work hard, persevere, defy the odds, grind things out. That's what gives someone the ability or the do drive. You, do you have a grit? I, I like to think I do. Uh, yes, I mean, I, and I think a lot of people do. But that's where that's the difference. So, so, for example, there could be many people on that floor at Harrah's who have the ambition. They all want to be managers. But only a couple have the driver, what I would say is really grit, to say, you know what, I'm going to grind it out. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to, cre- I'm going to make it happen. So for me, grit is, is the drive. But I want to, I, if you, it's okay, Haim, I know we're yeah, short no, on time no. here. but No, we have all the time in the world. <laughs> but I want to I wanna bring up ambition again because you and I were sitting at either Andiron Steakhouse or Echo and Rig not too long ago, maybe we, a couple months ago. We like steak. Yes. And we were having steak. We are having some whiskey. And you would ask, we talked about ambition. And you asked me, you know, where, where does that come from? How do you, did it come from your childhood? Where did it come from? And it took me a while to really think about it. And I, I think that there's three ingredients to ambition. And then I think I can figure, I, for me, I figured out what I think, how ambition is formed. 
which I think some people oh, would want to Oh, this could know. be interesting. I think it is because it took me a while. It took me months to really figure it out for myself. But So three ingredients. One is I think ambition is comprised of this hunger. You have to be hungry. You have to want more than what you already have or you have to want perhaps even more than what you think you can already get. So that's one aspect. Otherwise, if you, if you already... Is, the difference between that is someone who knows that if I spend enough time, five years, then I eventually I'm going to get it. That's not ambition. That's you know patience to get to what you're going to get. The other component, though, is wanting to defy the odds. Because once you identify that you want something more than what you have, then you start realizing, man, that's really hard to do. It's almost impossible for me to break that mold or defy the odds. So one is that the other component is this want or desire to say, you know what, I'm going to break the mold. I'm going to, I'm going to defy the odds. And then the final thing is really believing that you can do it, you, that you can, you know, overcome this. And in some sense, this comes out as egotistical, but I thought about it a lot. And that third component, believing that you can do it, mm-hmm. means that you, in some sense, have to believe that you are better than some of the others that you are around. Because if you accept that, if you're too humble and think that everyone is the same, everyone can get the same shot, then how are you going to have that grit, that drive to say, I can do it better than the person next to me? So you have to believe that you're smarter, better, stronger than some of the people that are competing for the same things. Now, that I think is interesting, but not as interesting as thinking about how does ambition form? How do you get those three components? Before you go there, I'm curious, when you are brushing your teeth or when you're driving to work and you're just in your own private thoughts, what's the voice in your head saying to you? (laughs) <laughs> I and I don't know. mean voice in your head like you're you're psychotic. I mean everyone has an inner voice. Yes, and no. it's it's called a lot of different things. It's called mindset. What is what kind of inner monologue do you have with yourself? So a lot of what I think about in my head is really it's based on to do list. Uh, so I'm constant, and it's actually it gets exhausting. But um, I find myself constantly thinking about the next task at hand and how to solve it. And how to I already prepare for it. Like I'm either writing language in my head for a document that I know I need to write or I'm coming up with a three-pronged solution to it, or I'm thinking about the next move. And so a lot of it is just I'm really preparing for the to-do list or even crossing things off of my to-do list by preparing mentally for them. Um, that's usually what goes in my head. So when you're thinking about, the, like, what you, when you were talking about ambition and that third element, which is believing, uh, you, know, you said it one way, I'm going to say it a different way, you believing that you can, whatever your ambition is, you believe that you can do that. What do you believe that you can do? What does that voice what is that voice saying to you? No, so I I don't necessarily have one end goal in mind to say that I believe I can do that, but I do have this belief. I, I do have those three components. So one, I'm very hungry. I want more than what I can have what what I already have. And I even want more than what I know I can get. So think about that for a moment. Mm-hmm. I know I can get certain things if I wait and take my time and do the things right, but that's not what I want. If I know that I can become a lieutenant in five years, 10 years, traditionally, that's great. But for me, the hunger tells me I want it to become sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have that. So I think about that. But I think one thing is important to say here because we're we're in an age of millennials where everyone wants to be a CEO and everyone wants to be the next billion-dollar entrepreneur. And they they I'm generalizing, but they, they believe that they should just get it because they want it. But the difference that I've seen in you over the years is do you not just want that, like I could be a lieutenant in five years, uh, you know, I want to break the mold. You match that with the posture. I want to break the mold and you put in the work, you put in the overtime and the over and the over and the overtime 
to match that ambition. True, but that's so that's where ambition and drive come together, right? So okay. what I'm talking about, these three ingredients are for ambition. So you can be hungry, you can want to defy the odds, and you can even believe that you can do it. But someone who is just ambitious, sitting there in their cubicle, and they're passionate, they can do it, they can defy the odds, it's not enough. You have to have that other side, which the is grit. the grit. The grit to be able to do it. Okay. But let's, for a moment, if you think about it, where does, so where does this come from? Why does someone have better or stronger source? ambition? The source. And, and this took me a while to really think about. But yeah. the, way I, the, way I, the first question I think you have to ask is, is ambition natural or is it learned? Okay. In other words, nature, nurture. do you, well, do you, are you born with it? Or are you as a brand new baby naturally born with this ambitious trait or do they learn it over time? And thinking about it, I don't think it's natural. I think it can be learned. I think you can be inspired and that can become ambitious. You know, it's funny. Was Rick Meyer said that specific phrase. Oh, that is funny. I didn't even he said, hear it. Uh. He said, this can be learned. Interesting. And now you're saying it too. Well, it must be, you guys must be onto something. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I will tell you this though. There is, however a difference in um, the timing matters. When your ambition forms, changes things. So the best way I think uh, that I think of it is I think of it as a tree analogy. Okay. So the tree of ambition, let's call it for now. So if someone suddenly becomes inspired, because maybe they hear something on your podcast, uh, and then they start planting the seeds uh, for growth, the seeds to become better, stronger, right? Sort of ambition. Uh, soon, they'll have this small tree of ambition form. Now, they that tree basically represents their desire to want more. But at the end of the day, that tree is new. It's still small. It's somewhat fragile. If the environment changes, the tree can die. If the environment changes, the tree can grow in a different way. Okay. Limited amount of branches that represent the limited opportunities. However, if you take the same person and if that person began planting seeds at a very young age, maybe even as a child, of what they wanted, that hunger, that desire, the belief that they can do it, well, then by now they have this massive, this strong tree that's been in existence for a while. The tree is very rooted in their lifestyle. It's very rooted uh, in, in their environment. Uh, that tree also has many branches, all kinds of the ambition has mm -hmm. formed and expanded to all kinds of different things that they can do with these different opportunities. But most importantly, that tree, that tree, because it's been rooted for so long, stands very strong against, let's say, the opposing winds, right? The things in life that change us, that, that bring us down or reduce our ambition. Well, someone who planted it very early has this very strong tree of ambition that, that is unchanged, and if anything, it's growing. That tree also requires more food and water than the small tree. You have to keep feeding the you ambition. You have to keep feeding it. So that's why you become more ambitious, and you want more, and you start doing more. So that, I think- Can that be a negative thing? Yes and no. Well, surely, we talk about it, right? People's ambition can destroy them. They, they become more because that tree grows out of control, mm -hmm. right? And it's not tamed. It's not cut down a little bit. It grows out of control. Now they want their branches grow in all kinds of different directions and they want the whole world, right? The tree wants to take over the entire yard. Um, very similar. So, but but Does if, your tree want to take over the entire yard? No, I do not want to take over the, other, the entire yard, but I do believe that as a young child, I think that's why I planted seeds of ambition early on. And so today it's become part of my life that I'm very ambitious and it has many different branches, many different things I do want to do and that I believe I can do. And I have ambition that's very hard to reduce. For when the environment gets rocky, gets, mm -hmm. you know, it gets, there's no water to feed the tree. I mean, my, my ambition remains. Uh, and then I have to do a lot. I have to constantly step it up to continue to feed that ambition. So that's true. I think that's the best way I can think of the, how ambition is formed. Interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to this at the very end of the show because I have some, some thoughts around 
how it's formed and all that. Um, but let's let's go into and again. We're we're still on the same sort of a theme, uh, but I re- I want to bring to life this kind of interaction that you and I have and you that you have with your brothers. You mentioned it already, you know, two or three times. I called my brothers when I was at this think tank saying, oh, I'm out of place. Or interestingly, I was just talking to my brothers about this a, a few weeks ago. So it's clear that the three of you yes. are all very, four of you are all very close. Uh, you guys are a support system for each other and for each other's ambition and drive and accomplishments. Um, so two months ago, three months ago, I think it was, I get a text from you and you said, hey, this is something I shared with my brothers. I wanted to share it with you. This isn't something I typically share with other people. <laughs> yes, I remember. <laughs> uh, and this goes into, you know, when I was asking you the question of what's that voice in your head saying, this kind of brings it to life f- for me. So the picture you sent me was you were sitting in your car, parked at a freeway. I'm going to yes. say you put it in park because yes. <laughs> you shouldn't be working your handheld device. You're at a red light. And to the left of your vehicle, you're in the driver's seat to the left. You know, anywhere you drive in Las Vegas at a freeway exit, you see the same landscape. It's just, I'll call it a sea of rocks. And they're all the same rocks. They're all the same size. And it it almost, it feels like it's an endless sea. It's a pool. It's whatever you want to call it. But if, you know, if you're listening and you, you live in Las Vegas and drive around in Las Vegas and you're at the stoplight at the freeway exit, you know exactly what we're talking about. They're all natural colors, earth tones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're kind of gazing into them and you relax your eyes a little bit, it's almost as if one rock uh, gets blurred into the other rock. Yes. So the So that's kind of the picture that you sent me. I don't know if you want to add to the picture or not. But then you sent me then a few paragraphs of how you see or what you think about when you see these rocks. Yes, I did. Uh, and, you know, you asked me to, to bring those notes. I, I will read it, actually, so you can readers can hear it. I don't mind sharing it now. Uh, I do think it's interesting. And it's just a spontaneous thought I had. But I'll read it verbatim for now. A few weeks ago, I was stopped at a freeway exit when I took a photo of this seemingly endless field of rocks. The dull landscape of rocks reminded me of how depressing life can be. To me, the image depicted the sad and harsh reality of stillness and likeness. Most people are simple, with little to no ambition for change or growth, and perhaps that's okay. Nonetheless, these people are often blind to the monotony of life or become risk-adverse to breaking the mold. Ultimately, their place in life, as portrayed in this image I took, is to be a pebble or a rock among thousands of the same. While both options vary in size and strength, the smaller of either often fall to the bottom of the pile, risking further degradation as they compete and clash with each other to stay at the top of the pile. The rocks that at least try to maintain or survive end up being among the bigger rocks or even boulders, perceiving dominance and success over the rest, but still remaining relatively unchanged in the bigger picture, in the bigger landscape of things. So what does one do in such such a situation? Do you fall victim to the surrounding pressure and become simple pebble among pebbles? Or perhaps you fight to survive and ultimately become a slightly larger rock among other rocks? To me, the answer is neither. There is a third option that escapes the photo I took. This option is to become the bulldozer that makes its own path and falls victim to no pebble or rock. The bulldozer creates new opportunities, destroys obstacles, and sets a foundation of growth. The bulldozer not only changes the environment, 
but it also sets the path for everything that follows. Most importantly, the bulldozer does not stand idle and wait for life to offer a path to success. Instead, it takes the initiative to create its own path and does so relentlessly and without compromise. But becoming the bulldozer is not for the faint-hearted or easily persuaded, and it can only be achieved through grit, hard work, and an unparalleled desire to render a greater course for oneself. To be a bulldozer, you must recognize the impossibility of your situation only to then defy the odds and separate yourself from those limitations. So next time you drive the freeway and notice the rock landscaping, ask yourself, do you want to be a pebble, a rock, or a bulldozer? That's the choice. So that's what I wrote. I feel a little awkward let's, reading let's it unpack verbatim, it. but sure. I know. It's awkward, and it's uh, <laughs> it's vulnerable that you shared that. I mean, it's, it is. Not a lot of people, first of all, have that kind of creativity, and even less people would put that out into the, into the world for other people to hear and to potentially criticize. I. I think it's important because it does, for me, the opposite. It shows that creativity and the reimagination and the setting your own path, that's possible for everybody. So that, thank you for doing that. That's why I asked you to do that. But I also want to unpack the message a little bit. The first part of it, where you talk about the sadness of monotony, you also, I think it was important if, if it was heard, you underscored, importantly, sometimes that's okay. Absolutely. And if it's someone yes. who's hearing this message and that's, you know, if your life's okay, it's okay. That's fine. But if you're someone that wants more and wants to create more for yourself, then the rest of the message is really for you. But so that some of the interesting elements of, of this message is you mentioned monotony and it's easy for all of us to get stuck in our daily routine without challenging, first of all, our beliefs of what's possible for us and those around us, but then also matching our actions to what we want, which we've, we've talked about already. So breaking out of the monotony, breaking out of the routine, you talk about being risk averse to growth. And I, I'm curious, why do you think people are risk averse to growth? So uh, first of all, you bring up a good point. So for many people, as I said, I think life does become simple because of the monotony, right? We, we go to our daily jobs every day. When you say simple though- Simple is not a bad thing. Do you mean simple like I'm a simple human being or do you mean it's simple because- I've established a routine and I'm comfortable just just going on that routine. Clearly the latter. So right okay. so so you want the 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 idea behind simplicity versus complexity is that you know if you wanted to challenge yourself every day and you wanted to be a trailblazer, you wanted to be the best in your field, you wanted to you know break the mold, defy the odds, all these terms we're using, that becomes very complex very hard, very difficult, very weathering. Whereas, whereas, and someone may choose that that's not what they want. Mm -hmm. That's not where they, they've gained their fulfillment or joy in life. For others, it may be, for a lot of people, they rather have the simplicity, so avoid that complexity I just mentioned, because they rather have their energy and time focused on their family, right? They rather have their wife and children, and, you know, as long as they have a job that will allow them can to do the things both? they enjoy. You can. But it, but make no mistake that the moment that you leave the sim, you can have some aspects of your life that are simple. But then you, but the moment that you become complex, the moment that you start asking for a lot of things, is the moment that you you become um, very challenged. I guess. So when I when I hear you talk about this, I, I I'm flashing back to a speaker that I've heard, and she's got TED talks out there and books. Her name is Eve Groznitsky, and she talks about mindset, and and how then the context that was presented to me is how mindset shows up in the workforce. And she, she identifies two different types of mindset. One is a fixed mindset. I like how things are. I don't want change. And the other is a growth mindset with a can-do attitude. And 
in business, there's, there, you know, there's positives and negatives to both. You don't want someone always trying to change and go after the what's next, the what's next. Fixed is good sometimes. So when you talk about this, I, I kind of reduce it to mindset and ambition, not so much lifestyle. Yes, I think that's fair. Um, and, and, but the other element that you talked about that I thought was interesting is you use the word victim in that. So I think that when we talk about simple life and fixed mindset, there's victim mentality and not in the opposite of that. Well, yes, because I think in even even if you choose not to, if, if you're not necessarily ambitious, right? Like you're okay with what you have and it's great. It's perfect. And, and you're happy with it. You're happy with it. Um, you're but, not a victim, but you're still, fa- but you're still finding yourself in an environment where people are competing. We're all competing, right? Because for most people, not, I, I know this is maybe a stretch for me to say, but I think that for most people, they do want, they want to be paid a little bit more. They want to have another vacation. They want to have another day off with their family. They want to have maybe certain, they want to have a, a nicer, nicer car. car. Yeah. All that. Yeah. I mean, there's, no, there's very few people that you can say will completely say that, okay, I don't want to do a single thing again. I'm very content with what I am, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think most of us find this. And listen, there's a lot of analogies that people draw in life, right? They say they get tired of the rat race. Well, again, that's, that assumes this kind of comp- competitive environment. So even if you're not very ambitious and you're content with what you have and you're happy with what you have, you still get a little bothered when the person in the office gets the promotion instead of you when you've been sitting there working every day doing a good job. Okay. So there's this competitive environment and that's where you will, I, in my opinion, you do fall victim if you don't compete, you don't clash. Yeah, I'm going to disagree. I, ahead, think, I think when you use the word victim, to me it's something different. Victim to me is I have a victim mentality. I want a nicer car. I don't have a nicer car because I wasn't born to a rich family and because I wasn't born to a rich family, I don't have the, the finances for it. I think there's a mentality in, in society that is is victim. I, you know, woe is me. I deserve. Whereas I view you as the opposite. You were born in the. I don't want to say the worst of circumstances, but not. You weren't born with a trust account, and yet you don't have this mentality of I deserve a Ferrari because I'm me. You, if you wanted a Ferrari, you would go you know, kick butt to get one. True, but we're using. So we're using. I agree with you in that sense. We're talking not, about different not, things. Yeah, not victim okay. mindset. I'm so. I, I, and obviously, we wouldn't want to use the, the the terms winner and loser. But my point is, there's always either you know uh, the person that that gains or lo- loses some, right? So if you're in the office, you're competing for something. The best thing I can say is this on that front. I I believe maybe I'm wrong, and maybe this is a cynical way, maybe it's an aggressive way of looking at things. But I believe that if you really want something, you have to take it. You have to go and get it. You have to position yourself. So in jiu-jitsu, right, the whole idea of position before submission that they talk about, you have to get into the right position before you go for that submission to be able to tap out your opponent. Well, I think the same thing happens in our daily lives. If you, uh, I've told this again to my my younger brothers. I think you got that phrase from me, by the way. Maybe. I, maybe. Position before submission. Maybe. Yeah, yeah it's possible. But, uh, but if you think about it, if you wait for life to give you what's mm-hmm. earned, what's deserved, Usually, if life fails you, in my opinion, I don't think that that happens. I think why? Because of what I said. There's everyone else competing for the same limited goods. Same. There's an only limited amount of uh, raises you can get, or corner offices you can have, or any of that. And everyone mm-hmm. is trying for the same thing. Now, if you're but what tr- you're saying though on that on that note, you're saying is you can either compete with everybody else as a as a boulder or a rock or a pebble, or create your own path. Create your own path. Yes. Be a bulldozer. So Peter Thiel who's a famous angel investor behind Facebook and many other you know, unicorn companies in Silicon Valley, said, competition is for losers. Invent your own category. Yeah. 
Yeah, to some extent, that's yeah, same right. Trailblazer or bulldozer or whatever, or same thing mm-hmm. is. And and listen, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to. That, that that means you leave your work to go open your own business and create your own category. In that sense, it just means that you have to think about a bulldozer. What does it do? Is it eliminates obstacles, right? And life is full of obstacles. Everything you do, there's an obstacle, and it's because we are competing for a limited amount of goods, right? You're in a real estate business, unless you create your own category. Well, but unless you create your own path, unless yes. you set a different foundation and a different pathway. The other thing that was interesting in that is it wasn't is was implied. You're not just doing this for yourself. You're doing this for everything that comes behind you. Yes. So you want to set a foundation, right? So before you build a beautiful house on a piece of land, you have to make that I don't land build houses. Flat. I build buildings. Well, buildings, whatever. You know what I mean? So you I have know, to I'm have kidding. a bulldozer to clear the way, clear the obstacle, set a foundation, and then build what you wanted to build on top of it. Um, so I think, listen, the, I, I put it in the end where, you know, in order, it's not for the faint hearted. It's not for that. And that's on purpose because it's not for everyone and it's not easy. And and it's not, and also there is that, there is this balance, right? Between wanting to pave your own path and remove obstacles, what does come at the cost of others, right? Because like I said, there is a limited, it's not like everyone has unlimited resources to do whatever they want. And those resources don't impact anyone else. Who taught you how to be a bulldozer? I don't know if I was taught by someone. I think that that what we talked about, that ambition and drive that were formed, that the seeds that were planted yeah. early in my life, uh, followed by the grit of you know how I was raised and what I saw, you know, mm-hmm. w- watching my mom work incredibly hard, I think gave me the ambition and the drive to try to be a bulldozer. So I'm uh, gonna I'm gonna differ with you again with the first thing <laughs> you said, which is you don't think you were taught. Because I think you were absolutely taught how to be a bulldozer. And as I reheard your story again and learned some new things about you, uh, you know, during this conversation, I'm going to submit to you that your mom is the original bulldozer. True. And your mom at a young age modeled for you what it means to set your own path, what it means to defy the odds, what it means to make your own way in a world in a sea of of boulders and rocks and pebbles and how not to fall victim to your environment and that you can change your environment. Yes. That's what I that's what I, I think after I agree with all you. This. I think you're right. Absolutely. So I'm going to take it a little further just to kind of recap and and you know get you on your way today, but it's interesting you said a couple times you don't you know when I first the first one of the first questions I asked about what defined you or shaped you the most, uh, you talked about who you are now, not necessarily how you became who you are now. And I'm going to revisit, you know, my wife's a therapist. <laughs> so, so sit back for a little psychoanalysis right now on yourself. You talked about you saw a body. The first time you saw a body, you were 13 years old. But how the next thing you said is, I don't think that really affected me. You talked about how your father left at a young age at, when you were young and how, yeah, that really didn't affect me that Sounds much. very much like a therapist. You <laughs> talked about, you talked about how, you know, your mom modeled for you sacrifice and defying the odds, but how that didn't really define you back then. You know, you're, you, I said it just now, I'll say it again. Your, your, your mom modeled for you True. everything who you are today, including the sacrifice that you've taken on to help her financially, to help your brothers along their way, to get them, you know, where they are in life, which is also nothing to sneeze at. They're, they're both accomplished young men because your mom modeled what it means to be a bulldozer. You carry the torch. She set the path. You're coming up behind her and setting it behind you for your younger brothers and everyone else. You're absolutely right. I will tell you, though, 
There's an interesting thing I would share on behalf of what my I've heard my mom say to somebody else. Um, so my mom, having raised four kids by herself in Las Vegas, you know, sometimes gets these questions where like, hey, you did this amazing job. How did you do this? And it actually happened to be that one your cousin uh, asked my mom uh, when we were buying some furniture for her. And uh, my mom said something that was very interesting. It stuck me for a while and I couldn't understand it because it was, it was asking for parenting advice to some extent. And, um, and she said, you have to be a friend with your kid. And that's all. And my mom speaks a little bit broken English a little bit, so, but she says, so you have to be a friend with your kid. And I, and I just didn't get it. And I thought about it. And I thought about my life. My mom was able to model the way by showing this very um, unparalleled work ethic, this amazing work ethic. I'm talking about 14, 15-hour shifts, come home, go to all the grocery stores, buy the groceries, cook it, cook, clean the house, and then still be around to talk to us and be there for us and then sleep maybe a couple hours. So this amazing work ethic, um, always you know humble and kind and, and this, but the key was in terms of what she did with us is she was a very good friend till this day, a friend. What does that mean to a parent? So a parent can nurture children by pushing them to be the best versions of themselves, sending them to the best schools, teaching them right for wrong. That's like the traditional parenting thing. But the thing that sometimes parents forget, I think, from I don't have children, but from what I'm listening to my mom say is you the most important part underneath all of that, underneath the drive and motivation is be their friend. Be the real friend with them. And uh, my mom did that. And so in that, you're right. She was the original what is, bulldozer. What does what a friend give you? Like what is the relationship and the dynamic between a friend and, and a parent? What's the difference? Well, so think about it. When you, Especially when you become a teenager, right? You, you have your parents and eventually you kind of disengage from your parents and you want to hang out with your friends. If you have a child that wants to hang out with their mom, how wants to hang out with their father, and enjoys the moment, like has that kind of relationship, then now you have a friendship in addition to the parenting role that you hold. Now, some parents will say that, that you have to be careful, right? Because you have to discipline, mm-hmm. you have to be strict, and how do you be a friend? Like, you know, it's uh, almost what you would say even in the police department, right? Supervisor versus the subordinate. Yeah, I have to keep a certain separation because I don't want them to become too friendly and not listen to me then when I try to be disciplined. But, you know, I don't know how exactly she did it, but till this day, we, you know, for me, my brothers, we view our mom as as one of our best friends, and uh, and she's one of those persons we like to spend time with. So because of that, everything else she was teaching us in the background about character and value, work ethic, being a bulldozer, all that, it stuck because it came from our friend. It came from a, it came a from place someone. of a peer of don't just do what I say, do what I do. Yeah. Interesting I don't think we can end on a higher note. <laughs> so we'll end there. Dory, Sounds I want to I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's been real real fun for me to revisit a lot of our 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 past and talk about some things I didn't even know about you and really explore some of these concepts, my takeaways that I've learned from you over the years. Well, I appreciate the time. Thank you, hon. So again, thank you for uh, always being an inspiration for me, uh being an inspiration for all of us to be a bulldozer and not a pebble. And if your mom were here, I would I would thank her too. And I think as you reflect on everything we talked about today, you might learn a few things <laughs> about what the source of your ambition is. So that's it, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and about what your takeaways were from this episode. Make sure to leave us a review. Send in your comments. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways Podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please 
Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.